in peace are yours from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I get super excited around holidays, so I have invented a holiday game. I will say a few descriptors, and you will guess what holiday it is. Now you can do this one of seven ways. I'll only mention three now that I think about it. You can silently say it in your head. You can whisper it to your neighbor sitting next to you, or you can, of course, shout out. Now, here we go. Ready? Turkey and mashed potatoes. Nice, nice. Okay. A tree and presents. Very good. These are easy. Eggs and a rabbit. Nice. Round two. Green and beer. Very nice. Very nice. Fireworks and hot dogs. Very good. Very good. Pranks. Very nice. Yes, you will go far in life. And final one, the main challenge. Polyester and wind. Flag day, of course. Yes, everyone's third favorite holiday. Now, the good part about any holiday is the getting together. It's the celebrating. It's the having fun. It's the remembering who we are as our hearts are filled with joy and thankfulness. And Thanksgiving is not just filling the heart. It's also filling the tummy. Setting up that plate is what I want to talk about now. Now the mistake here, friends, is trying to partition the food during Thanksgiving in the traditional manner. You've seen this, the green beans go here, the stuffing here, the mashed potatoes, the turkey. So much seems to be driven when you are partitioning out that plate in the order that the dish was passed to you, or perhaps if it's kind of a stand up and serve yourself just however it was arranged. But the key to a good Thanksgiving spread is what? That's the question. Well, friends, I'm happy to stand here today that after much research, I can confidently tell you that scientists, BuzzFeed news journalists, the entire US World Cup team, and all 10 of the dentists agree on this is how you set up the Thanksgiving plate. The key is to have a volcano of starch in the middle of the plate. It is nature's perfect monument that rises up out of the center and you get those mashed potatoes and then you erupt that volcano when the gravy drips down, thus touching every piece on the dish so that every bite can be had with starch. Every bite containing the goodness of the center. And it's here, thinking of my Thanksgiving plate, and soon to be yours also, I hope, that I drew a connection with our text today. So pull out your Bibles, get your bulletins ready, and you can also, of course, follow along the screen, because our text today is coming from Deuteronomy 6. Now, Deuteronomy is considered the linchpin of the Old Testament. It's the culmination of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. And it is here that it throws the entire shadow of its theology found in Deuteronomy over the rest of the New Testament, over the history of the people of Israel, over the writings of the prophets and the Psalms. Really, Deuteronomy is boiled down to a sermon or to a series of sermons. Moses, standing on the plains of Moab with all of Israel assembled before him, is preaching his very last sermon. And as soon as he completes it, he will then climb the mountain to die. The plains of Moab are that last stop of that 40-year journey in the wilderness that began after the exodus from slavery to the now promised land that they are finally about to enter. 
And throughout this time, the people of Israel have experienced a ton. They've been delivered. They've wandered. They've rebelled. They've had wars. They've had providence. They've had worship. They've had guidance. The people of Israel have heard a lot from God, from commandments to covenant conditions to sacrificial procedures. And now here they are, poised to cross the river, and Moses is giving this last sermon since he himself won't be going into the promised land. He is now making sure that they don't leave any of this message from God behind. Not so much as one detail of their experience or God's revelation to them is to be forgotten. Moses is showing them and declaring to them the importance and the power of the Word of God. And he does it in a way that puts their entire experience of salvation and providence into the present tense, into the now the entire revelation of commandment and covenant into the present tense, the now, wrapping in all of it in a charge and a blessing for today. And it's here we find in Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 4, that Moses encouraged them and is encouraging us today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. In Hebrew, these verses are known as the Shema here in Hebrew, right? It is the classic Hebrew confession of faith describing who God is and what our response ought to be toward him. And we hear this essential truth about God that he is a person, not a vague pantheistic force. And that being one, he cannot be represented by whatever contradictory images or new false gods that people fashion or even ourselves as God. The Lord is one. He is complete unto himself. He is God and no other is. The Lord is one. Now, if this is making you stop and think, well, hold on, Jonathan was just baptized into the name of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How can God be one, but Jesus and the Spirit also be God? Well, like Scripture teaches in its entirety, we worship one God, just like it says here. One God that exists in three persons, not three separate gods. What is this verse saying? This verse is saying that the Lord is one in a way that does not contradict the truth of the Trinity. In fact, it establishes the truth of the Trinity here. The Hebrew, one, the Hebrew word for one is ahad, which speaks most literally of a compound unity. The very first time we see this word used in the Bible is Genesis 1-5. So the evening and the morning were the first day, were one, a unity with two things. In Genesis 2.24, we see it again, and the two shall become one flesh. In Exodus 26, we see it with the way that the temple is designed when the 50 gold clasps are used to hold the curtains together so the tent would be one. And in Ezekiel 37, when the Lord tells Ezekiel, take up two sticks, prophetically representing Ephraim and Judah, and make them one, bring them together as one, a plurality. The one here has nothing to do with singularity, but is referring to a God in three persons. And if you're still not satisfied with my fancy wordplay, even the name of God here in this line suggests the plurality of God. The Hebrew word Elohim grammatically is a plural word used 
as if it were singular. But I'm not here to focus on one word and miss the whole point of the message. I'll remind you, like I have done many times before, that we have this tendency for knowledge. We're examining these words and these truths so that we can then understand it. We can bottle it up and classify it, saying, okay, I got that. Now it means nothing. Avoiding the message of what it is saying there in its entirety. We substitute the I understand for the revelation that God brings to us. That we are to take this, the Lord is one, and hold it in our heart, with all our heart, with our soul, with our strength, and to allow this word of our Lord to live in us, to breathe in us, to find movement. To be on your hearts, the center of who you are, pumping blood to the entire body. You know, lots of things are important, but when something is in the center, when it's central, it spills into everything. It touches everything. It is seen in everything. The Lord must be the center. And I'm not saying that in some cheesy information way of God before everything. I mean it in a very practical, living way. When He is at the center, He flows and spills into everything. Every decision, every action or reaction, every conversation. At the end of the night, He, the Lord, is what is remembered and praised. At the beginning of the day, He, the Lord at the center, is the one who is called to walk alongside you and to walk with you before and behind. At the start of the service, it is His name that is called upon. And at the end of the service, it will be His name that blesses you. Heart, soul, strength, but don't skip over all. The all there is what makes it. The all is what demands and forces it to come into the present tense, into the now. Not just something that happens for one time or that you make time for when you can. It is Him in all things. Like Paul says in Colossians, He is before all things and by Him all things hold together. This is the way we are to love and to be in relationship with God. This is the way that He loves and is in relationship to us. God wants a complete love for us, right? We love Him because He first loved us, is what the Apostle John says. He first went all in on us. And what we find is that God wants our love most of all. We think God demands a hundred other things from us like money, time, effort, will, submission, and so forth. But what God wants is your love. And when we love the Lord with all, well, then everything else sorts itself out. But without giving Him love, what's it for? Jesus, knowing this, when asked what is the greatest commandment, says these very words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then immediately said in the second, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. When we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we find it easy to start to love all the rest. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses. 
The Israelites were good at making religion the integral piece of their life, the center. The reason for their success was not that the, the religious education was very informational driven, but it was life orientated. To use the very context of your life to teach about God. The key to teaching your children, to following God yourself, is stated simply and clearly in these verses. You must make God a part of your everyday experiences by putting Him in the center. To start to see God in all the aspects of your life. They would begin by standing still, directing their hearts to God and saying this. And then they would start to move. And then they would start to walk. And then the living out their faith came. Not just at church. Not just during devos. But in all things and in all places. Through prayer and praise and thanksgiving and living. As you start your day tomorrow or maybe reflect tonight as you lay there falling asleep. Where is it? That you have not brought God in. That you have said, no, I got this. You don't belong here. This is mine. Where have you been trying to do it alone? Thinking, you know, God's a little bit too big for this. Or he's probably important somewhere else away. That you've forgotten that God is close to you. When will you intentionally, or where will you intentionally place God? Will it be on your hands? Ready to call upon him. To put your hands into action, will it be upon your foreheads and the things you think? Will it be on your doorframe so that when you walk out or you come home or wherever you go, you will remember the Lord with the purpose of passing it along? What an important piece to pass it down, to pass it along. It's here that the people are called not to pass on their favorite sports team or their favorite recreational habit or the way we tie knots or even the way you set up your Thanksgiving plate, but to pass down the faith, the knowing of God, constantly nurturing and encouraging one another. And that's difficult because we were taught self-reliance and always told to grow up. But not here, not in this relationship with Jesus. We are to continually depend on Him, to grow into Him, to mature in faith, yes, but never to get to a place where I've got this and I don't need Him anymore. The I learned it and now I graduate and move on from Him. There is no separation of life from Jesus. Everywhere, speaking everywhere, looking for Him everywhere, praying everywhere. This is what the family is made for. And that's not just family of husband and wife and children. That's the family that God has given you with kinship and foster families, with the people you live with in your homes, with your circle of friends, with those closest to you, to speak and to live and to know. And Moses closes saying, the Lord is going to bring you into this land that he swore to your fathers. And it's going to be good. But don't forget. Verse 12 there at the end. Be careful in those last two lines. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord.
God is bringing Israel into an abundant, prepared land. And this abundant blessing God had for Israel, there was an inherent danger. I'm not just saying this because I've been to Mexico once and I've seen what it's like there. But we have an abundance here. God has given us much. And the warning he has for those that are surrounded by good things is to not forget him. And you know the history of the Israelites. They forget time and time again, and maybe we do too. The call is to come back. We tend to fail to take seriously the danger that success and prosperity and comfortability brings. We agree that if you win the lottery, it's probably not going to go well for you even though we really want to, theoretically. But we make this mistake of thinking that what God wants for us is a life of the good things, a life of the comfort, that the blessing of God is on our material things and not on the rootedness of each other. One to another in love, one to him in love. Moses reminds us, don't become so accustomed to life that we forget the source, the center. Don't forget so that you then become undistinguishable from what is around you. Remember that the Lord our God is one. The first, the center. And through reminders, through worship, through personal time in the word, through service, through community, focus your hearts, your hands, your strength to the Lord. For the aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live deeply and thoroughly to live from the connected center of Jesus. To see his truth, to see his beauty, to see his love. Starting now, right where you are, in the place where God has called you, with the people that are around you, with the door frames that you walk through and the hands that you have, to live in love now, connected to him, connected to one another. Amen.